Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degani on Talk Show. It is, uh, I almost forgot the month. It is September 23rd, 2011, and the months are going by far too quickly for me this year. Before we get into the final chapter of Matthew chapter 28, uh, I'm sorry, the final chapter of Matthew chapter 28, it may be fitting to discuss just why it is that Christians should believe in a resurrection. It's contrary to all common sense. I understand that. It, it's um, the, the idea is constantly assaulted by worldly knowledge and worldly wisdom. I understand that. There are many supposed Christians who have rejected the notion of the resurrection, shamed by so-called science, and I understand that, mistakenly believing that the science of man should be able to explain everything and anything. And therefore, whatever it cannot explain cannot possibly be true. This is the folly of humanism, which believes that man is God, and therefore anything that man cannot understand is fiction. Of course, their own evolution theory is an exception to this. In truth, man is not God, and the true God will not be mocked. If we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and to me it is absolute folly to believe that they were created by chance, then we must by necessity believe that God transcends the physical creation as we know it. If we believe that Adamic man, the Aryan man, was created in the image of God and bears his spirit, then we can imagine that Adamic man can also transcend the physical world as God does. In the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 23, it says, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If God has no efficacy in the reality of creation, then our faith is vain. As Paul told the Corinthians, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all mankind. 1 Corinthians 15.19 If we are Adamic men, then we have that spirit which Yahweh breathed into Adam. And we shall live even after the death of the body, that's the Christian hope, and we cannot die. Christ said it, John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the spirit which produces life. The flesh does not benefit anything. The words which I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. We will see more of the life-producing spirit when we discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 35 a little further on. Paul tells the Romans in his epistle to them in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, For the wrath of God is revealed from, that, from heaven upon all profane and unjust men who withhold the truth with injustice, because that which is to be known of God is visible among them. 
since God has made it known to them. Namely, the unseen things of his from the creation of the order or the world are clearly observed, being understood in the things made both of his eternal power and divinity. And for this they are inexcusable, because knowing God, they thought of him not as God, nor were they thankful, but they became foolish in their reasonings and were darkened. Their hearts void of understanding. Alleging to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the estimation of the incorruptible man, I'm sorry, the incorruptible Yahweh, of the incorruptible God, into a resemblance of an image of corruptible man and birds and four-legged animals and reptiles. Paul's talking about those first pagans. Humanism is actually an age-old error. Paul said in Hebrews 11.3 that by faith we perceive the ages to be furnished by the word of God and that in which that which is seen is not come into being from things which are visible. Paul was a proto-physicist. And yes, the ancient Greeks surmised the existence of the atom, but Paul stated it clearly. We know that this is true, and that which is seen has not come into being from things which are visible. Yet that does not mean that we have all the answers. All matter is energy in its most basic forms, and therefore our consciences are also energy. And they exist apart from and independent of our bodies, as even the gospel, the apostles tell us at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, or in a revelation in chapters 1 and 4. The belief that our invisible spirit conscience, and I use the word conscience in its archaic sense, is eternal and can or even would one day return to the physical world is an ancient and original belief across all sectors of our Aryan race. And we find in it, we, we, we find this belief in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. In the book of Job, at chapter 19, verses 25 through 29, we find this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins or my organs be consumed within me. But you should say, why persecute we him? Seeing the root of the matter is found in me. Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. Likewise, Jude 14 and 15 exclaim, And Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied to thee, saying, Behold, the Lord has come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment against all and to convict every soul for all of their impious deeds, which they have committed impiously, and for all of the harsh things which the impious wrongdoers have spoken against him. The Greek historians wrote about the bravery of the Germans in battle, and they attributed it to their belief, the belief of the Germans, the Galatahi of the Greeks, that the spirit of man lived on for eternity after death in this world. 
So we have in Germanic epic poetry stories of Valhalla and Niflheim. Niflheim was the underworld where the goddess Hela ruled, from which we get the word hell. Yet the Greeks also, in the Homeric period and later, believed this same thing and professed it in their own poetry. So we see stories of Olympus and Tartarus. Tartarus is also known as Hades or Hades, which was the original name of the god of the underworld, the place having taken his name. We see the Isles of the Blessed in the West, where the Greeks believed that the souls, the, the, the souls of those who were good and died had retired. Stories such as Odysseus's visit to Hades, where he conversed with the souls of the dead in the Iliad, or where the heroine in the tragic poets, I think of, I forget, I think of Euripides, where the heroine Alcestis was brought back from the dead as a reward from the gods. The Sumerians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians had all these same beliefs also. And there are similar stories in their legends. One story is the, the, the descent of Inanna to the netherworld. Another story is that Gilgamesh came to reign over the netherworld after his death. They're just legends, but they reflect the same beliefs of the Hebrew Bible, the Greek legends, the Germanic legends, the Roman legends, and even the earliest Egyptian myths, as we know from the inscriptions in which they left, be which they left behind. They all possess these same beliefs of life after death, the eternity of the soul, and a hope that certain blessed people would return to the flesh in this world. Yet by the first century, the men of Athens had already become humanists, and many of them scoffed at the idea of a resurrection, as we see in Acts chapter 17. While the resurrection of Christ, which many men believed in from the beginning, and which we have in many, many early writings, first and century, first and second century A.D. writings. While the resurrection of Christ happened in his own flesh and blood body, he serves as an ensign to us that we will at some point all return to the physical world in flesh bodies. It is telling in some of the early arguments concerning Christ that many scoffers, rather than dispute the fact of the resurrection, disputed the nature of Christ instead, which to me is one sure sign that there was indeed a resurrection in the first place, and or men believed there was, and there is a continuous line of Christian testimony from the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. and beyond which support the gospel accounts, as early as Justin Martyr, Tertullian, men who lived in, in the 1st, 2nd century A.D., Many critics complain that not enough was written about Christ, only because they are absolutely ignorant 
of just how much indeed was written about Christ. Something else that is telling is an account in Tacitus of miracles very much like those attributed to Christ, which were said to be performed, albeit indirectly, by Vespasian, the Roman emperor. The Romans at the time worshipped their emperor as a god on earth. Contrary to Christians who recognize Christ as Emmanuel, which means God walks among men, God on earth. Tacitus, at one point in his writings in the Histories, Book 4, states this, and I quote, In the months during which Vespasian was awaiting was waiting in Alexandria for the periodical return of the summer gales and settled weather at sea, many wonders occurred which seemed to point him out as the object of the favor of heaven and of the partiality of the gods. One of the common people of Alexandria, well known for his blindness, threw himself at the emperor's knees and implored him with groans to heal his infirmity. Vespasian became emperor around 70 AD. This he did by the advice of the god Serapis, whom this nation, meaning the Egyptians, devoted, as, as it is to many superstitions, worships more than any other divinity. He begged Vespasian that he would deign to moisten his cheeks and eyeballs with his spittle. Sound familiar? Another with a diseased hand at the council of the same god prayed that the limb might feel the print of a Caesar's foot. At first, Vespasian ridiculed and repulsed them. They persisted, and he, though on the one hand he feared the scandal of a fruitless attempt, yet on the other was induced by the entreaties of the men and by the language of his flatterers to hope for success. At last he ordered that the opinion of physicians should be taken as to whether such blindness and infirmity were within reach of human skill. They discussed the matter from different points of view. In the one case, they said, the faculty of sight was not wholly destroyed, and might return if the obstacles were removed. In the other case, the limb, which had fallen into a diseased condition, might be restored if a healing influence were applied. Such, perhaps, might be the pleasure of the gods, and the emperor might be chosen to be the minister of the divine will. At any rate, all the glory of a successful remedy would be Caesar's, while the ridicule of failure would fall on the sufferers. And so Vespasian, supposing that all things were possible to his good fortune, and that nothing was any longer past belief, with a joyful countenance amid the intense expectation of the multitude of bystanders, accomplished what was required. The hand was instantly restored to its use, and the light of day again shone upon the blind. Persons actually present attest both facts. Even now, when nothing is to be gained by falsehood, Tacitus, the Histories, Book 4. A lot of commentators would assert that if we cannot believe Tacitus, 
then neither can we believe the accounts of the miracles in the Gospels. Yet, I would insist that we cannot believe Tacitus, and that his stories, nevertheless, prove the accounts of the miracles in the Gospels, and that they were in circulation at the time. We cannot believe Tacitus because of the accounts in the Gospels, since it would seemingly only be natural for Romans to invent such stories by which to magnify their god, Caesar, so as for him not to be outdone by those accounts which we know to be in circulation concerning the Christ. So I believe that the Romans had every reason to manufacture these accounts so that their god could compete with the Christ. That's my opinion. In another work of Tacitus's, The Annals, chapter 14, Tacitus describes Nero's having used Christians as scapegoats when he placed the blame for the burning of Rome upon Christians. Where he sees that, quoting from the Penguin Classics edition, and I quote, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they are popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius's reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in the capital. First, yes, Tacitus considered Christianity a degraded and shameful practice. You did not hear that wrong. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, sounds like an FBI operation here, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for incendiarism, as for their antisocial tendencies. Yes, Tacitus said that Christians had antisocial tendencies. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after darkest substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus, at which he mingled with the crowd or stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians, and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied, for it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality, rather than to the national interest. End of quote. Flavius Josephus and Tacitus were both writing in Rome around the same time. Josephus knew Nero's wife personally, Papahia, and in his Antiquities, in Book 20, he called her a religious woman and described her as being very favorable to the Judeans. In fact, Papahia had a personal interest in Judea, and she had it to the extent that again, according to Josephus, 
By her influence with Nero, her husband, did Decius Florus become the governor of Judea. So it is no wonder why many scholars believe that Papahia was part Jewish, although it is certain that she had Roman ancestors as well. A hundred years later, Tertullian, the Bishop of Carthage and an early and prominent Christian writer at the end of the second century AD, explained that the Jews were responsible for these persecutions of Christians, and also that Jews wrongly accused Christians of all sorts of sexual and other immorality. Therefore, it is evident from what source Tacitus got his information concerning Christians, and it is evident from what source his wife, Nero, got his anti-Christian influences. It is doubtless that Christians were persecuted in the days of Claudius and in the days of Nero, as we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and elsewhere in Paul's epistles. All of these things help to prove that Christianity was indeed a major factor in the first century A.D. Roman world. Paul explains resurrection at length, albeit in somewhat esoteric language, at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58, and I will read them here with some comments. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what sort of body will they come? Foolish, that which you sow, is it not made alive, even if it may die? And that which you sow, is it not the, the body that you sow that will be producing itself, but a bare grain, whether, for example, of wheat or of any of the others? And Yahweh gives to it a body just as he has willed, and to each one of those seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man and another flesh of beasts, and another of birds, and another of fish, and bodies in heaven, and bodies on the earth. Paul's just speaking in very poetic language. But different is the effulgence of the heavenly, and different is that of the earthly. There is one effulgence of the sun, and another effulgence of the moon, and another effulgence of the stars. A star differs in effulgence from other stars. And this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in honor, it is dishonor, it is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Of course, Paul is talking about those of us with Adamic bodies, Aryan men, as he goes on to explain, and it is clear that our DNA at conception contains the information necessary which produces our spiritual body as well as our physical body. To continue my quote, and just as it is written, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural than the spiritual. 
The first man from out of heaven, of soil, the second man, I'm sorry, the first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven. And let me say that both men, Adam and Christ, had the Spirit of God. And it is clear that Paul here uses Adam as an allegory for the earthly and Christ as an allegory for the spiritual. Therefore, Adam represents our origin and Christ represents our destiny. To continue my quote, as he of soil, such as those also who are, who are of soil, and as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven. While many of us are still of soil, there are already many more in heaven. We each live this life in soil and then an eternal life in our spirit. Paul calls our eternal spirit the treasure that we have in earthen vessels in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. To quote from verse 49, 1 Corinthians 15, And just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven. But this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood are not able to inherit the kingdom of God, nor does decay inherit in corruption. If you do not have that spirit of Yahweh our God, if you are not an Adamic man, you cannot get into the kingdom. It is reserved only for that Adamic man to whom God imparted that spirit that makes only perfect sense. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. So it is apparent that the kingdom of heaven shall indeed be here on this earth, and we shall all bear the image of the heavenly here on this earth. Verse 52, in an instant, in the dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. The spirits of the dead shall return to the physical world. But those who are living, being changed, it is evident that the physical world may not be exactly as this current world as we know it. Verse 53, this decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and when this mortal shall have put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is guilt, and the power of guilt is the law. But gratitude is to Yahweh, in whom we are being given the victory through our prince, Yahshua Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, you become steadfast, immovable, at all times being abundant in the work of the prince, knowing that your toil is not empty with the Lord. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 in part, which reads, He will swallow up death and victory, and Yahweh God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken it. We see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, the following. 
And death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if one is not found written in the book of life, he is cast into the lake of fire. It is clear that this lake of fire is a destructive force and not a cleansing force, since hell and death obviously cannot be cleansed. You cannot clean up death. The promise of eternal life in Christ, a redemption from the fall that occurred in the garden, was evident from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, where it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Philosophically speaking, if there is no resurrection, then there is no point to creation. We are told throughout Scripture that the trials of this life bring us into the understanding of the necessity for obedience to our God. We are told that there are rewards for obedience in both this life and in a life beyond this life. If there is no life beyond this life, then there is no point in the scripture and there is no point in the creation by God of cognizant beings who can even consider these things. There is no point in the prophecies of scripture or in the fulfillment of any of those prophecies. Yet, the realization that the prophecies of God do indeed reveal past and future events, and the realization of those events of history in prophecy lead us to understand that the Scripture is true, and that the balance of Scripture shall indeed be fulfilled. When we see the fulfillment of the prophecy of Scripture in history, we are assured that the remaining prophecy of Scripture shall be fulfilled, and that includes the resurrection. Matthew 28, verse 1. And the being laid on a Sabbath, while approaching dawn on the first day of the week, Mariam, the Magdalene, and the other Maria had come to watch the burial place. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for a messenger of God descended out of heaven, and having come forth, rolled the stone away and sat upon it. And his appearance was as lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And from fear of him, those watching trembled and had become as dead. These are the guards which Matthew described at the end of chapter 27, which the Judeans placed at the tomb. Then responding, the messenger said to the women, the messenger or the angel, if you will, said to the women, you must not fear, for I know that you seek Yahshua who had been crucified. He is not here, for he has arisen just as he said. Come see the burial place where he was laid. And going, quickly you tell his students that he is arisen from among the dead. And behold, you go ahead into Galilee. There you shall see him. Behold, I have spoken to you. With slight differences which can easily be accounted for, the Gospel of Mark very much agrees with the simple version of the account of the women at the tomb 
of Christ on this first morning after the Sabbath. It is at this point that Mark's Gospel comes to an end. Luke's account seems very different from the one offered by Matthew and Mark. However, it does not at all conflict. It is merely written from a different perspective, and it includes some things which Matthew and Mark did not mention, while not including some things that Matthew and Mark did mention. Luke's account very much seems to be just what Luke said it was at the opening lines of his gospel, a composite of the accounts of one or more eyewitnesses which were compiled by Luke, where he then created a narrative from those events as they were described to him, writing the things which he found were most necessary to include. John's account of this event is quite different from any of the others, and it has its critics. Yet a close inspection proves that all of the criticism is unwarranted. John recorded hardly any of what we have read here so far in Matthew. He wrote only two brief lines, and then his description of the events jump forward to the report from Mary, Mary Magdalene, to the apostles, where John and Peter run to the tomb and are followed by the return of Mary or Maria the Magdalene to the tomb and what then transpired. And those events, none of the other three Gospels recorded. Mark's Gospel is the only other one which may have been expected to corroborate these events in Matthew. I'm sorry, the events in John, since Mark recorded Peter's Gospel and Peter was there with John. Yet, Mark's Gospel was either left unfinished or its ending was lost. The end of Mark, which we have now, was added many centuries later. So John's gospel does not conflict with the others. It merely records things that the others did not record, which happened later, things which John was an eyewitness to, but Luke and Matthew were not. Now, while herbs were not mentioned by Matthew here in this account, Luke wrote, that they came to the tomb bearing the herbs which they prepared. And Mark and Mark wrote that they had purchased herbs in order that having come, they may anoint him, meaning his dead body. Again, none of these accounts conflict, but they only tell the same story from different perspectives and mention different facets of that story. There are other things which are revealed here which are more important. For here we have clues as to how long the body of Christ was in the tomb. If he was buried on the preparation day, be, I'm sorry, if he was buried on the preparation day before the Passover, when he was crucified, and if this here is at dawn on the first day of the week, as we are told, and if the women purchased, according to Mark, and prepared, according to Luke, herbs for the anointing of the dead body of Christ, then these things must have been done previous to the first weekday, meaning the purchase of the herbs and the preparation of the herbs. They must have been done previous 
to the first day of the week, which we are at now at early dawn. And the purchase and the preparation of these herbs could not have taken place on a Sabbath. If, as we are told, Christ spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, as he said, Matthew 12, verse 40, then the only circumstances under which all of these things mentioned in the various Gospels can be true are these. One, that he was crucified on the preparation day before the Passover, as the accounts say, and that the Passover, therefore, was on what we might call a Thursday. So he was crucified on Wednesday, and at sundown, the day began to transform to Thursday, and the Passover is on Thursday. The end of the Passover marks the end of the first day and night, night and day, I'm sorry, in the tomb. But the day after the Passover was a Friday was, by necessity, another preparation day upon which the women may have both purchased and prepared the herbs for the body of Christ. The end of this Friday marks the end of the second night and day in the tomb. The next day, Saturday, is the third night and day in the tomb, and that is the regular weekly Sabbath. The apostles gave no details concerning these things, but it is the only way to easily understand them by which there is no conflict in any of the gospel accounts. The next morning marks the first day of the week, which we would call Sunday. And the women find that Christ is already risen. He must have risen the evening before, exactly three days and three nights after he was crucified. I know that there is a lot of argumentation and emotionally based contention over these things, but there is no other legitimate explanation because any other explanation either denies the literal meaning of the three days and three nights or assumes that the women could break the law and purchase and prepare burial herbs on a Sabbath day, something which is not too likely in the Jerusalem of the Pharisees. Christ was crucified on what we may call a Wednesday, and he was risen by what we may call a Sunday morning. Clifton M. Heiser has a detailed explanation of these things on his website in a paper entitled Three Days and Three Nights. It, it's um, from an older paper by a gentleman whose name I forget. It's listed there, and, and it's quite carefully and accurately assembled. Matthew 28, verse 8. And having departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to report it to his students. And behold, Yahshua met with them, saying greetings. And they, having come forth, grasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Yahshua says to them, Do not fear. Go to report to my brethren that they should depart into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Before Christ was crucified, just after that last Passover meal, at Matthew 26, verse 32, 
he told the apostles, And after what it takes for me to be raised, I shall go before you into Galilee. So this is the fulfillment of that statement, right? Verse 11. And upon their going, behold, some of the sentry having gone into the city reported to the high priests all the things which happened. And gathering with the elders and then taking counsel, they gave a considerable number of silver pieces to the soldiers, saying, Say that his students, having come at night, stole him upon our being asleep. And if this should be heard by the governor, by Pilate, we shall persuade him, and we shall make you free from concern. And they, taking the silver pieces, did as they were instructed, and this report has been uttered by the Judeans until this day. If we read the book of Acts, we will find that the typical punishment for a guard losing what he was guarding was death. Here they're rewarded. As I mentioned in Matthew chapter 27 last week, the other gospel writers did not record this aspect of the death and resurrection of Christ, which is the account of the soldiers at the tomb. That does not mean that it did not happen. It only means that they did not feel it was important enough to record. At this point, and this is a topic which I could elaborate on greatly, but I won't do it tonight. At this point, I would like to state that the words concerning Christ, which are found in the Talmud, just like the words concerning Christ, which are found in Tacitus and Josephus, they also help to prove his life and crucifixion and resurrection. While the words of Christ in the, about Christ in the Talmud do not support the gospel, the many disgusting things which the Jews wrote about Christ in their vile works help us to prove that the gospel is true. For if it were not true, the Jews would have had no reason to attempt to discredit him so fiercely as they did. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven students, minus Judas, of course, but there were probably other people with them, and only the apostles themselves are mentioned. Then the eleven students had gone off into Galilee to the mountain where Yahshua appointed them, or instructed them. And seeing him, they made obeisance, but they doubted. And coming forth, Yahshua spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and upon the earth has been given to me. Therefore, going, you instruct all of the nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all things whatever I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you all the days until the consummation of the age where two or three of you were gathered in my name, I am there with you. Some people, even in Christian identity, err, discounting this final paragraph as a spurious addition to Matthew. I must say that there is no solid reason to doubt the veracity of this passage, especially since it is really not a universalist passage, as it is often perceived. 
And since it appears in all of the oldest manuscripts of Matthew. But the text says that all of the nations were to be instructed in the gospel. Not simply all nations, as the King James Version omits the definite article, but all of the nations, meaning specific known nations, and not just any and all nations. There is a world of difference between these two ideas. When the Greek definite article is used, it is used to designate certain things and not uncertain things. And that is why it is called a definite article, right? Joseph Sayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, under the definite article on page 433, column B, states this. And I quote, the article is used with names of things not yet spoken of in order to show that definite things are referred to, to be distinguished from others of the same kind and easily to be known from the context. And he gives an example. As Tabrefe, the babes belonging to the people of that place the Greek ta is the article, and brethe means babes, citing Luke 18.15. End of quote. If, as Thayer attests, the phrase the infants in Luke 18.15 refers to specific infants, as he says the babes belonging to the people of that place and not any other infants, then here in this passage... The phrase, the nations, must refer to specific nations and not just any nations. And it is the context of the Bible which must tell us which nations they are. In Luke chapter 2, we learn that around the time of the birth of Christ, it happened in those days that there came out a decree from Caesar Augustus to register the whole inhabited world. The word oikumene, which means the inhabited world, was the Greco-Roman world And in the context of the Bible, it was the only world that the apostles knew. The apostles would never have imagined that Christ referred to any nations outside of that world, especially since none of those nations were ever mentioned within the context of Scripture. Therefore, we find not one shred of evidence that the apostles ever went to any non-white nation or tribe. And furthermore, we find that the many Arab, which means mixed, 
The word Arab is a Hebrew word which means mixed. We find that the many Arab tribes at the fringes of the Oikumene were never converted to Christianity. By the time of Christ, the promise to Abraham had been fulfilled in the children of Israel, in that they had indeed become many nations. And I can demonstrate from history, it can be well demonstrated from history, from archaeology, and from Scripture, from the Bible itself, from the Old Testament itself, that the proto-Celts, the peoples, the earliest peoples of Spain, of Britain, of Ireland, of the northern coasts of Africa, the white Carthaginians, the Libby Phoenicians, they were all Israelites. They all descended from the children of Israel. Yes, there were other Japhethite tribes, white tribes, who inhabited those places before time, but the Israelites of Scripture, they all settled in those places. The Germanic people came from the Israelites of the deportations of the Assyrians. There were people in Germany, Japhethite people in Germany, before the Saka and the Chimerians came from Asia into Germany. We see that in Germanic literature as the story of the Aesir and the Vanir. The Aesir being the Saka and the Chimerians who came from Asia. The Romans descended from the Trojans, and the Trojans, it can be demonstrated from Scripture, came from the Israelites of the Bible. The Dan and Greeks, who were the Mycenaean Greeks, I could demonstrate from Scripture and from archaeology, came from the Israelites of the Bible. And finally, the Dorian Greeks came from the Israelites of the Bible, as Scripture and history attest. The Parthians, who came to rule in Persia, came from the Sake, the Israelites of the Bible. There were many other tribes in Europe at this time. The Etruscans, the Tartesians of Spain, the Ionian Greeks who made many colonies all over the place. In the Black Sea area, the Phokians of Marseille, they were Ionian Greeks. The Mesek and the Tobals, the, the, the tribes of Mesek and Tubal were Japhethites. The Medes were Japhethites. And, and it could be shown in the pages of Diodorus Siculus that the people that we know later as Sarmatians came from the Medes and the Assyrians. They were not Israelites. But they were related Aryan people. The Thracians were not Israelites, but they were related Aryan people. They all have a genealogy that leads back to Genesis chapter 10, which represents the white race as it existed circa 3000 B.C. And that's a discussion for another night. But the tribes that descended from the Israelites of the Bible 
they came to the hegemony of the world, the Parthians and the Romans and the Scythians of Germany. The world was very roughly divided amongst those three groups at the time of Christ. And everybody else had a lesser role in world history. At this time, they, the other tribes were not as prominent. That is part of the promise of Scripture. And we find not one shred of evidence that the apostles ever went to any non-white nation or tribe which were beyond these tribes. They never even tried to convert the Arabs. By the time of Christ, the promise to Abraham had indeed been fulfilled, and the children of Israel had indeed become many nations. These nations of Israel, along with the other Adamic nations of Genesis chapter 10, are the only nations ever inferred in the context of Scripture the only nations ever referred to. And they are the only nations of this so-called Great Commission, as these last words of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew are called here. I will now read two passages of Scripture which demonstrate that, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, and Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's sake is his people, for Yahweh's portion is his people, I'm sorry. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Acts 17, 26, and 27. And he made from one. Every nation of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements. Paul is making a direct reference to Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. To seek God. If surely they should seek after him, they would find him. And indeed, he being not far from each one of us. The Genesis 10 nations, the white sons of Adam, and it can be proven in history and archaeology, that every nation of Genesis chapter 10 was originally white. Are the only people who can ever be included in any of the promises of Scripture, all others are excluded and cannot ever be included. They have no genealogy that leads back to Genesis chapter 10. The fall in the garden was the fall of Adamic man. The white man. Therefore, the restoration is the restoration of Adamic man. Other races have absolutely no stake in this heritage unless they are bastards, and the scripture explicitly excludes all bastards. Out of these Adamic nations, the children of Israel were chosen by God to have a special role in his creation. That doesn't make them better than the other Adamic nations. Usually they're worse. <laughs> that just gives them a special designation in relationship with God. At a national level, they would have a special partnership with him. Acts chapter 17 reflects Paul's gospel to the Adamic nations, which are not of Israel. 
All of Paul's epistles are written to be sent into the Israelites, and that can be proven, who had established various nations within the Oikumene. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul addresses Essenians. The Essenians were Ionian Greeks. That can be proven from Persian and Hebrew inscriptions. They were descendants of Javan, as they are called Yavana in the Persian inscriptions, like the Behistun rock. Javan is the son of Japheth of Genesis chapter 10. Therefore, Paul does not speak to the Essenians in Acts 17 about the law or forgiveness or redemption, but he did speak to them about resurrection. And resurrection is something that the Athenians should have understood since their own poets had mentioned the possibility of it centuries beforehand. However, the then-worldly Athenians rejected the efficacy of the one true God and scoffed at Paul. Universalism was certainly foreseen by Christ, but of course that alone does not make it good. Many evil things were foreseen by Christ and the prophets. In the parable of the net, in Matthew chapter 13, Christ tells us this, and I quote from verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heavens is like a net, having been cast into the sea, and it gathers from out of every race. And the word kind in the King James Version is the word denos, which means race, which when it is full, Bringing up upon the shore and sitting, they gather the good ones, the good race, into vessels. But the rotten ones, they cast out. Thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. The messengers shall go out, and they shall separate the wicked from the midst of the righteous. And they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31 that the house of Israel and the house of Judah, represented by white Christian Europe, their descendants, would be sown with the seed of man and the seed of beast. This is an allegory for the mixing of Adamic people, white people, with beasts, which would would have had to come from outside the Oikumene of that time. There weren't a whole lot of beasts living in the Oikumene at the time of Christ. Although there were already, besides the Canaanite tribe, some mixed races at its fringes, like in Egypt, for instance. In Isaiah chapter 56, which is a prophecy which speaks primarily of the alienation and then the later regathering of true Israel, the children of Israel. We read this from verse 9. All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yeah, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yeah, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Come ye, say. Come ye, they say. 
I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. Well, God said in Jeremiah that he would sow the seed, that he would sow the houses of Israel and Judah with the seed of beasts. We cannot blame him if we accept those beasts, since he also told us that everyone who would eat the sour grapes shall die for his own iniquity. In other words, this is a trial due to our own sin. The watchmen chastised by Isaiah are those men who are responsible for allowing the beasts to arise and devour the children of God. We see the fulfillment of this today in several aspects. First is all of the crime committed by these aliens who are allowed to continue committing it no matter how many times they get caught. Second, there is the race mixing, which is now sanctioned and even often encouraged by these watchmen, our political and social and ecclesiastical leaders. These things have been fulfilled in the process of colonization and imperialism, and now in the rampant immigration of the aliens into white lands, which the failures of imperialism have precipitated. There are some Christian identity pastors who see the restored kingdom of God as some sort of new and divinely inspired imperialism. They and so many other fools totally neglect the lessons of history. Imperialism is a device of man and not of God, and it shall fail under any circumstances. Sheep do not rule over wolves. Wolves have to be removed from the sheepfold. It's that simple. Christ, as we see in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, said many things to the apostles after his resurrection. But Matthew only chose to record these few, which he obviously felt it necessary to record. Among these last words of Christ recorded by Matthew are again these words. Therefore, going, you instruct all of the nations, the nations of the Oikumene, the white nations of the Adanic world, the white nations of the Greco-Roman world, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it has been explained above in relation to the nations. These words are also viewed, often viewed with some suspicion, where it says, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the words appear in all of the oldest extant manuscripts and are rather consistent across all of them. So they almost assuredly belong to the text. These words must not necessarily be read to mean that those who receive the gospel should be baptized in water. That is an embellishment of man being read into the meaning. To insist that the word baptism be understood in that manner. Rather, applying these words retrospectively and within the scope of all biblical prophecy, Christ has told us here that we are to be immersed in the knowledge of the God of creation, to be immersed in the name of the Father, baptized. To baptize means to immerse not necessarily in water, although that's the literal meaning. 
Christ has told us here that we are to be immersed in the knowledge of the God of creation, to be immersed in the knowledge of his, having been here as his own son, who sacrificed his own life on our behalf. An example that each of us should follow in turn on behalf of our brethren. And as Paul tells us that we should be immersed in his death, which was for the same reason, we should live our lives on behalf of those of our race. And finally, he says that we are to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that spirit of separation and sanctity, which the children of Israel were given at the first, all the way back at Mount Sinai, as recorded in Exodus chapter 19. Those words, Holy Spirit, that word holy means hagias. I'm sorry, that word holy is the Greek word hagias. The Greek word hagias means separated and dedicated to God. That's what the word holy means. At Exodus chapter 19, the children of Israel were told that they would be separated and dedicated to God. That is how all white men should live their lives. Separated from the beasts, separated from the other races, separated from the enemies of God, and dedicated to the purposes of our God, which, in this age, is to care for our kin, our white brethren. Peter refers to this facet of the Holy Spirit in his first epistle, at 1 Peter 2.9, where he says, But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues, the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. Who at one time were not a people, but are now the people of Yahweh, those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. Here Peter refers to the prophecy concerning Israel alone, which is found in the opening chapters of the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea chapters 1 and 2. Read properly, the Great Commission that we find here at the end of Matthew is not all-inclusive. It is rather exclusive to Israel alone, to all of the nations of the Greco-Roman world, the Adamic Oikumene. That closes my commentary on the Gospel of Matthew I pray that it stands the test of time. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night, and tomorrow night I am going to discuss a paper that I wrote at Christogenia, Misconceptions Concerning Paul and the Church, and I'm going to cover that and embellish upon it if I can. I would like to get a podcast version of it. Next week I will be back here. I'm going to um, not prepare any notes next week. Next week, I'm going to do the prophecy of Malachi, the book of Malachi. I should be able to discuss the entire book of Malachi in one evening and, and explain the prophecy in Malachi in relation to the New Testament and explain the prophecy of Malachi in the historical context in which it was written so that we understand what it means.
to us today. That will lead me in to a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, which I will start, God willing, in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Good night. Praise Yahweh.